Revelation 22, our text is going to be verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 21. It says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, and I give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that hears say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, please be with us today as we stand before you to sing your praises, to come to you and with our petitions and to hear your word proclaimed. We ask, Lord, that you would be with this reading, that you would bless it. Please, Lord, be with me, that you would allow me to speak your word with clarity with accuracy lord to lay down the the burden of the word for your people and that they would pick it up ask lord that you would please forgive me of my sin for it's in christ's name i pray amen this morning we come to the last words of revelation these are the last words of inspired scripture contained in this text are the last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so think about this. Since the Apostle John, who records Revelation here for us, also introduced Jesus in his gospel as the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That means this text contains the last words from God in the Word of God by the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. What Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples before his crucifixion, those were not his last words. When he spoke to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension, that was not his last words. Neither the the great commission, the, the encouragement at his ascension, Paul's apostolic visions and acts, None of those were the last words of the Lord Jesus. The last words of Jesus for about 2,000 years and counting now 
are here. It's been said that last words should be lasting words. And what we find in the text here, the final text of Revelation, is a twofold invitation. In our text is an invitation from Jesus and an invitation for Jesus. And I want you to make sure that you see both of these. This, this twofold invitation might be most clearly seen in verse 17. After the Lord Jesus is promised in verse 12, he's, he's coming again, he's coming soon and coming to reward his people. Verse 17 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. There are two invitations in that verse. The first invitation is from the Holy Spirit of God and from the Bride of Christ, imploring the Lord Jesus to fulfill his promise to return. In fact, John even adds, let him that hears say, Come, that is all those who hear the words of this book, the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and King, all of those who are saved by grace respond to Christ by appealing for him to fulfill his promise to come quickly. We invite him, please come. The second invitation here is not for Jesus, it is an invitation from Jesus. Let him that is thirsty Come, and whoever will, let him take the water of life freely. This invitation is actually an echo of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verse 1. It says, come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, though you have no money, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or as the Lord Jesus also says in John seven thirty seven, anyone who is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Now do you see how there's these two invitations here? It's important that you understand this. All of the text this morning sort of revolves around these two invitations. The last word in the word is this. The Lord Jesus invites lost sinners to come to him and in response... Those saved sinners long for the day when the Lord Jesus comes back for them. I want us to consider this text this morning and see why it is that those two invitations are important to you. Why should you accept this invitation from Jesus and why is it you should extend this invitation to Jesus? First off, Because of who Christ is. In verse 13, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now since the New Testament was written in Greek, these words here, Alpha and Omega, right, are simply the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. We would say in English, I am the A and the Z. The Lord explains what he means by these words as he goes on to say, I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. What Jesus is telling us here is I am the start and I am the finish line and I am everything in between. Listen, Jesus is everything from A to Z. He is the 
first, the beginning, and he's at the beginning. As we're reading the last words of Jesus, he is calling to mind, to me, the the first words recorded in Scripture. You know, back at the other end of the Bible, instead of the last page of your Bible, the first page of the text of your Scripture, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved on the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Here's we're reading the last recorded words of the divine creator. The first recorded words of the same creator is what spoke all this into existence. And so the Lord Jesus is saying here, I was at the beginning, but more than just that, more than just being present at the beginning of all things, he is the source of all things. On the other side of the scale, he is the omega, he's the Z, the the end, he's the last. And so, of course, this means he will be there at the end. (laughs) Listen, if if there is only one thing that could last, if, if there's only one truth that could stand the test of time, the last man standing is Jesus. And I know, it's but Pastor Jason, we have everlasting life. There is really no end to this. We're all going to live with Jesus forever. Praise God, that's true. All who repent of their sins and trust him for salvation will be with him forever. They do have everlasting life with him. But the day is coming, <laughs> when every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth is going to bow to their knee before him and the last man standing is Jesus. So just like he is at the beginning and is the source of all things, the Lord Jesus is at the end and he is the consummation of all things. He put history into motion and and brings all history to its conclusion. History is his story. And what we've seen in Revelation is that history does not end in sort of, you know, inexplicable chaos. It ends in divine order as Jesus comes. He is the architect of all history and he sets all things right. He's the Alpha and Omega. Everything started with him. Everything is moving towards its conclusion in him. And everything in between is sustained by him. He's the Almighty God with authority and power over all things. And you should be certain here, Jesus, as he speaks, is claiming his divine nature by these very words. He is the creator God at the beginning. He is the God of the righteous judge at the end. He is is the the God of the Old Testament prophets in between. And in Isaiah 44, 6, this is what is recorded. It says, thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last and there is no God beside me. Who is the one and only God? It's none other than, according to Isaiah, Yahweh, the the King, the Redeemer, the first and the last. This is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's the King, Redeemer. He is Yahweh himself. He's the beginning and the end. We see more of who the Lord Jesus is in verse 16. 
I have sent my angel or my messenger to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Y'all, any of these verses would just preach all day, right? But verse 16 is just staggering. Jesus says, I am the root and offspring of David. Now, in one way, this is telling us that the Lord Jesus is king because King David in 2 Samuel 7 received that promise of God that his distant offspring would rule forever as king. God even told David, I will be his father and he will be my son. So Jesus is saying, look, that's me. I'm, I'm David's promised son. I am that eternal king. But that's not all he's saying. He doesn't just say, I am the offspring of David. He says, I am the root and offspring of David. Like he's using a tree terminology. So so think about this as a tree. He's saying, I am the root that gives tree life, and I am the fruit that that tree produces. Or if we were doing it as a genealogy, a family tree, he's saying, if you can wrap your mind around this, I am the ancestor and the descendant of David. David was a child of God and God was born in the flesh as a child of David. Or maybe think of it this way. The Lord Jesus brought David into existence so that he could, through David, bring himself into existence in humanity. Just as staggering, he says, I'm the bright and morning star. He is the, it pictures there, the glorious, brilliant sunrise. He's the star which, which Balaam foresaw would rise out of Jacob back in Numbers 24. He's the, the righteous healing sunrise that Malachi talks about in Malachi 4.2. He's the fulfillment of Peter's promise in 2 Peter 1.19 when he writes of the day dawning and the day star arising in your hearts. Look, the Lord Jesus is the light of the world and the world of darkness which is now is going to be radically transformed when Jesus, our long-awaited righteous sunrise, dawns on the horizon of history. Why is it that you should embrace and obey this invitation to come to him and then respond with your own invitation, asking him to return? Well, do you know who he is? He's God, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. He's king. He's the beginning and the end. He is the the source and the consummation of all history. Second, You should hear his invitation and obey and extend this invitation to him because of the blessing of obedience. Look at verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments that they might have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Back in verse 7, the Lord Jesus pronounced blessings on all who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. And now there's more sort of detailed description of the blessing for obedience they're blessed by being given he says authority to enter in and enjoy the tree of life and have access to enter into the gates of the holy city the tree of life was present at the garden of eden adam and eve had free access to 
eat of the tree of life and, and enjoy communion with Yahweh forever. But in their rebellion, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became sinners. They were cursed. They ultimately denied, were ultimately denied access to the tree of life. But now the tree of life we see is again available for those in communion with Yahweh. They have a right. They have an authority, this means, to enjoy the tree of life. And they also have access to enter the gates of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, this place of eternal blessing with the Lord Jesus. Now I do want to mention that some of the modern translations have this verse a little bit differently Right? Instead of saying, blessed are they that do his commandments, it'll say, blessed are those who wash their robes. The, the difference is actually in the original language and the way that the words sound. They sound very similar in the phrase. Looking at this, I tend to think that doing his commandments is the right reading because it certainly echoes verse 7, the promise of blessing for obedience. But Either way, the essential meaning of the text does not change. It takes the work of the Lord Jesus to grant everlasting life with him. Nobody is saved by commandment keeping. Nobody is washing their own robes, cleansing themselves. It's the shed blood of Jesus on behalf of sinners that makes the difference. He cleanses us, he washes us, he, he gives us a heart for obedience, and he grants us a place with him forever. You should embrace and obey this invitation to come to him and then respond with your own invitation to appeal, appeal to his return because he promises to bless that kind of obedience. Third, you should do it because of the curse on disobedience. Look at verse 15. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and makes a lie. It should be evident the Bible is not shy about commanding obedience and then also addressing the consequences of disobedience. Verse 15 is basically the final threatening passage in the New Testament. and It does not pull any punches. In verse 14, we find those who, who are granted access to the holy city are those who have been obedient to God's word, cleansed by Christ's blood, and only then do they have right to take the tree of life and enter into the new Jerusalem. But now we find the character qualities of those who are refused access to the city. They're dogs, it says. Listen, this is not talking about your cute little pampered poodle or fur baby at home. In, in first century world, dogs were not pets. They were wild animals. They were scavengers. They were homeless wanderers that nobody was providing for. The Jews of Jesus' day also used this term dogs to describe the, the wicked nations that are living in hostility against God. It also calls them sorcerers. This one deserves a little extra attention. First off, sorcerers is exactly what that word means in Greek in John's day. They practiced magic arts. They were, they were dabbling with the supernatural in hopes of influencing the spirit, the, the physical world. But listen, there is only one supernatural being who controls all things 
and deserves our attention, and it's God alone. This word might also describe another area today. It is the Greek word pharmakos, and it comes down to us to describe drugs. Mind-altering chemicals were a big part of first century sorcery. And and while it might not be done in the name of magic today, mind-altering drugs are still emblematic of those who are outside of Christ's blessing. He also references whoremongers, and the word there is pornos, and it simply means sexually immoral. Disobedience to God is often often displayed through the rejection of his commands of sexual morality. Sex is reserved for marriage, the uniting of one man and one woman for one lifetime, and we might as well add now that that man was born a man and that woman was born a woman. Right? Denial of God's sexual ethics puts you outside of eternal life, as does being a murderer. So few people think they're guilty of this, and so many don't really grasp that God is judging our hearts on this. If you pull out a gun or a knife and you physically kill somebody with no no justification for it, you are a murderer. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus convicted us of the sin of murder by telling us, look, if you're just angry without a cause, you are already murderous in the eyes of God. God judges our hearts. And he lists also idolaters in verse 15. Those who worship what is not God. Listen, while idols can be those lifeless statues that some people were bowing down to, you can also make idols of things that are clearly good. Right? Your family, your hobbies, your political ideals, your job, your, your money, all of those things can become idols when you prioritize them over God himself. Until the Lord Jesus is your alpha and omega, the beginning and ending of everything to you, you will remain an idolater. And then finally, he says in verse 15, whoever loves and makes a lie. This is beyond just If you tell a lie, you are outside of blessing in the holy city. I think the ESV does a great job translating this as everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Whatever sin you cling to is a falsehood. You have to let it go and hold on to Jesus. And if you won't, If there is some sin that you love so much that you're just going to keep doing it no matter what God's word says, then you love and are practicing a lie. You are embracing what is false. Not only are such wicked people denied access to the eternal city with Jesus, Revelation 20 told us they will all be cast into the lake of fire. So you should embrace this invitation to come to Jesus And respond with the invitation that appeals for his return because scripture is clear that there is these consequences on all of those who disobey. Fourth, you should do it because of the truth of God's word. Verses 18 and 19. 
I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man should add to the these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. It just seems appropriate that as we come to the final words in God's word, we get this affirmation that the word of God is complete and authoritative. The word is not to be added to. The word is not to be detracted from. The word is simply to be read and obeyed. We read a similar statement back in the, the first section of Scripture. Back in Deuteronomy 4.2, it says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. The word of God is truth. And it is complete truth. God will not suffer any additions or subtractions. None of us are qualified to sort of amend and revise or edit the mind of God. So when someone says that they've got a dream or, or a vision or some sort of direct revelation from God, they are adding to the Word of God. And the reason that we study through books is that I don't dare mess with this admonition against taking things away from the Word of God, right? I don't want to approach this scripture as something that I'm going to pick and choose what I want to see and ignore the hard parts. The warning in verses 18 and 19 is that you, if you attempt to add or subtract, then you are placing yourself under the wrath of God who really can add and subtract. Verse 18, you add to what God says, God's going to add to you the plagues that are written in this book. So specifically, I think it's talking about the wrath of Revelation. It's going to be intensified towards you. And in verse 19, if you take away the words of this book, God's going to take away any part you have in his book and, and out of the holy city and from the blessings contained in Revelation. Children of God take the word of God seriously. We don't get to, to form it to our own opinions and morality. Believers, right? True, true believers have this high view of Scripture which demands that we do not amend and edit what it says. We can't take a penknife to sections we don't like and remove them. We can't start, you know, filling in the margin with our own imaginative commands as if that is authoritative. Don't mess with this word because these are the words of life. Jesus says in Scripture that this Scripture is what testifies of him. The angel earlier in Revelation says the, the revelation of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is what this book is about. This is how we know Jesus better and we love him more and obey him more fully. The truth of God's word, unchanged and unamended, invariably points people to faith in Jesus Christ so that we accept this invitation from him to repent of our sins and come to him for salvation. And then we, in turn, gladly extend this invitation to him to do exactly what he promised to come again based on the truth of his word. 
fifth, because of the certainty of God's plan. Verses 20 and 21. He which testifies these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. What God has said will happen, will happen. It is not left open as a possibility. It is a certainty. This book is not describing, hey, this is the way it seems like things might unfold. It is telling us this is God's certain plan for the way history will unfold. The Lord Jesus himself is a witness to this, which is what John says. He who testifies these things, right? Jesus is his own witness and his witness is true. And his witness there in verse 20 is surely I come quickly. And immediately the response of the apostle John and of all disciples of Jesus is amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. Amen is that word meaning we agree, we believe, so be it. We embrace this. In this case, it is an enthusiastic embrace of the promise of the Lord Jesus that he is returning and all the events of Revelation will take place. Now think about this. Nobody reading Revelation would ever say this unless they understood what a wicked offense their sin is and what a wonderful Savior Jesus is. Nobody else would ever say this. Nobody else but believers would read Revelation and say, yeah, bring on the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath, right? Bring on the destruction of the wicked and and the righteous reign of King Jesus. We want that. So having studied Revelation and knowing what is coming, in addition to all that is coming, knowing that it means the Lord Jesus is coming, do you respond with, Amen, even so, come Lord Jesus? Because in verse 17, the Holy Spirit welcomes the coming of Jesus. The bride of Christ welcomes the coming of Jesus. All who hear, he says, not just with your, with your ears, but with your hearts are called on to welcome the coming of Jesus because he has welcomed us to come to him first and be satisfied in him, right? Repent of your sin, come to him in faith and then eagerly await the day when he comes to unite with all of those who have come to him. If you have read Revelation, you have to understand it is not the the revelation of everything that's going to happen at the end of time. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the creator, the redeemer, the king, the son of God, the, the savior of your soul. And if he is not all those things to you, then I would encourage you to repent of your sin and come to him in faith. Because whether you like what you've read or not in Revelation, it's going to happen. It is history written in advance. All history, past, present, and future is his story unfolding according to the perfect plan of God. And so there are these two invitations in Revelation and they're made clear 
at the end of Revelation, the Lord Jesus invites sinners to come to me. And all those who come to him in return invite the Lord Jesus, come back to us. He promised he will. The Lord Jesus invites lost sinners to come to him. And in response, those saved sinners eagerly await the day the Lord Jesus comes back for them. You ought to respond to that invitation in faith for who he is and what he's done and the truth he's given, the the blessings promised for obedience, the, the consequences promised for disobedience, and for his final words here in the final word of God where he says, surely I come quickly. And what is our response to that? Y'all, what's our response to that? Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. 